Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. I think we'll start with this. From a 1975 book by Clive Burrell and Brian Cascinella titled Crime in Britain Today. Mr Crane usually offers this piece of sound advice to all new officers joining his fraud department. Always follow the money. Inevitably, it will lead to an oak-panelled door and behind it will be Mr Big. A court painter was an artist who painted for the members of a royal or princely family, sometimes on a fixed salary and on an exclusive basis where the artist was not supposed to undertake other work. Painters were the most common, but the court artist might also be a court sculptor. In Western Europe, the role began to emerge in the mid-13th century, and by the Renaissance, portraits, mainly of the, the family, made up an increasingly large part of the commissions. In the early modern period, one person might be appointed solely to do portraits, and another for other works, such as decorating new buildings. In the late Middle Ages, they were given a salary and formal title, and often a pension for life. But often the artist was paid only a retainer, and paid additionally for works they undertook less often. They could be among the most famous artists of the day. In Britain, Henry VIII imported Holbein, and Charles I appointed Sir Anthony van Dyck. Elizabeth I nurtured the first native-born genius of British art, uh, Nicholas Hilliard, and Charles I built one of the greatest royal art collections and lavishly uh, patronised the arts. Patronage of art by the wealthy continues to this day. Art's a business and has been for many years. Photography is also a business, Art practice or commissioned work, workshops and print sales, photo books and festivals, they're all commercial. They're all part of that business. But the issue for me is not the fact that photography is a business and understanding that it is a business, whatever area you may be working in. The point, I suppose, that kind of came to my mind uh, in the last week has been a couple of uh, initiatives that have been set up by the Magnum Photo Agency. One, uh, $350 for a one-hour online review with a, one of their photographers, and another, an over £3,000 for an online summer school. Now, the problem for me with these is not the fact of the recognition that Magnum as a photo agency needs to make money, it needs to support its photographers for doing different work outside of commissioned work but the fact of where they're putting that price the fact of how high that price is sure and as somebody pointed out in the last week you can buy a cheap watch and you can buy an expensive watch and that's absolutely true they both do the same thing but there isn't an option out there for anybody to get involved with these magnum initiatives on that basis you either pay the big fee or you don't get it at all and that's when we come down to this situation of pay to play and this divisive uh, situation this divisive environment that that creates amongst photographers which is based on income and social economic situations that's not right. 
If we're going to understand that business and photography are merged together, then we need to understand that there needs to be different access points. My point to Magnum is, by all means, charge what you like, but you're going to get a certain kind of person and a certain kind of photographer. You're not going to get the best photographer. You're going to get the wealthiest photographer. And although that may increase your coffers, it isn't going to increase your standing within the photo community. And it also isn't going to improve upon the situation that you find yourself in with photographers becoming increasingly generic. I'm pleased this week to welcome to the podcast explaining what photography means to her, Dana Singer. Dana's a photographic artist, educator and curator. She was born in 1971 in New Brunswick, New Jersey and raised in Tom's River, New Jersey. Doesn't that sound like a romantic location? She received her BFA from the Pratt Institute in 2010 and her MFA from Yale University in 2017. She was awarded the Juncture Fellowship in 2016 from the Orville H. Shell Junior Center for International Human Rights at the Yale Law School for her Roma project and in 2020 a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship. Dana has worked on photographic projects for Yale University, the ACLU and the New Yorker, the New York Times and the New York Times magazine amongst others. Her work has been exhibited at the New Britain Museum of American Arts, the Philadelphia Photo Arts Center, the Aperture Gallery in New York and the Danziger Gallery in New York amongst others. She currently lives and works in Philadelphia and New Jersey. What does photography mean to me? Um, it's a huge question. Um, and it's definitely one that changes um, depending on um, when you would ask me, I suppose. Um, but there are like a few things that I think remain the same and have been there the entire time um, since I began, which was at an early age, at 16. Um, I'm interested in making something that didn't exist before I made it. And that's not to say that I, um, that I don't understand influence or that, uh, or that there, I mean, Brisson says, uh, that there are no new ideas. There are only new arrangements of things. And I believe that, um, but there is a new expression of, um, my thought and my experience, my lived experience. And that's something that I try to get at, um, in photography. Um, I'm interested in, um, bodies in space and geometry and arranging things in space, compositions. Um, and there's something really satisfying about creating a frame, um, that just didn't exist before you put it together. It's, it's like a problem to solve. And, um, I'm really interested in that and, um, the symmetry of it all. And there's, um, uh, the building of a frame from the ground up, um, deciding where things can go. I think that the world can feel really chaotic and, um, 
So there's this sense of organizing and a sense of safety, I think, in kind of creating um, a container for your thoughts. Uh, I'm interested in the possibility of photography and the connection that it brings um, me with the world, um, the expression of the language. And um, I mean, I think that all art has similar concerns um, and specifically um with me, I'm, I, I like to think uh, about photography in the same way that I think about writing and um, that w- there's a cadence in the language and that there's a movement um, throughout the frame uh, in the same way that um, you would string senten- uh, like words to make a sentence. And so I like there to be a complete sentence in, in, that, in the frame. Um, uh, I'm... I'm interested in that expression and the language of saying something without actually having to say it. Um, I'm, it's also about, uh, you know, it's a lot of things in terms of like the, the way that I engage with photography. Uh, it's the, the spontaneous moments that happen in front of the camera and then the more directed ones and how do you get at truth? You know, what is truth? All of these things that you start to grapple with, um, when you're, when you're, when you're making, when you're making something. And I think in the end of, at the end of that, there is this, um, there's just something so satisfying about that connection and about, um, just kind of reaching out to another person and saying, Hey, do you feel this? And I feel it. And I can share that with someone. It's a relationship. Um, it's about love and connection. Thank you, Diana, for your contribution this week. Interesting, though, that she was talking so much about the idea of composition and composition within the frame. We started this week talking about the court painters, and, of course, painting is all about exactly that, that idea of the frame and working within the frame. And perhaps there's a a connection there that... um, I was kind of trying to allude to, I suppose, in a way, Diana, a commissionable photographer. She's commissioned to shoot portraits or create portraits, I should say, for a number of uh, American publications, but at the same time is working on personal work, which perhaps is is most or easiest or most obviously described as uh, contemporary art practice whatever that may be so interesting to hear her spend quite so much time of her contribution focusing on those elements there and referencing Bresson of course I think also interesting to hear her use um, or I suppose bringing up uh, comparisons to language and writing and communication so often in my understanding of photography that's where i lean towards and you anybody who listens to the podcast regularly will know that that's a recurring and they are recurring themes that idea of writing language and communication with the visual image and it's why i suppose i speak so much about this idea of visual language and visual communication In the last week, I uh, wrote an article about uh, festivals and photography festivals and where they could go and and how they should be. It was kind of uh, instigated by a couple of things, really. One was uh, news I was seeing of a new photo festival that was launching 
there just felt to me in the way in which it was initially promoting itself as tired and really, um, I suppose just, yeah, tired is the right word, kind of repetitious and lacking any kind of uh, relevance to where we are today in how we've started to communicate with each other as photographers and, and as people. It felt to me as if it was the same old template with the same old names being used as creative directors. And I thought, maybe yeah, this is time for something different here. It seems to me as if this was an idea which was kind of thought up pre-COVID and hasn't taken on board any of the uh, the revolution, I think, that has occurred over the last few months, primarily around the idea that we're now talking to each other on screen. Uh, I've been to more talks in the last few months than I've been to in the last few years, primarily because it's so much easier for me to do. I don't need to travel. I don't need to make those arrangements. I'm busy. So actually grabbing an hour out of the day is much easier for me than grabbing two, three or four hours out of the day. Financially, it's much easier. I have to pay for exorbitant parking or uh, London congestion fees and so forth as somebody who lives outside of London. So, you know, th that idea that that was being made available to me seems to be a relevant kind of consideration for future uh, festivals. It also seems to me that there's so many photographers out there now offering help on via Instagram, via YouTube channels, and that's all for free. So that whole thing that I've spoken about so much on this podcast, the dreaded paid-for portfolio review, which I, I was also referencing at the beginning of this podcast with Magnum, doesn't seem to be any need for that now. I think we've moved forward. I hope we have. And I hope that the people who still feel that's relevant um, will start to see that, that um, they're kind of rather isolated, I suppose. So I thought there were those two things there that a modern festival could take on board. And then I started to think, well, so many festivals I've been to recently have, I suppose, consisted of poorly printed images uh, just pinned to a wall. A lot of the reason for that is financial, and I understand that. It's very expensive to have beautiful prints made and framed, put behind glass and hung, especially when the... Uh, the locations for such uh, exhibitions quite often won't allow drilling in, in walls for, for large prints. So I thought, well, I've seen over the last uh, couple of months a number of software packages offering me three-dimensional uh, viewing experiences, and none of them, I have to be honest, has worked for me at all. But what has worked for me is, over the, again, over the last couple of months, it's, maybe it's a time I'm reflecting is that uh, I've been able to visit a number of exhibitions because they've been recorded and, and put online and streamed as short films with additional context, perhaps, of the curator taking me around or an expert explaining to me about the work. And that's been great. And I thought, well, I'd rather that, actually, rather than some poorly printed uh, images pinned to a wall, I'd rather have a little film made and I'd like the photographer to talk me through that process. Oh, well, that's a really good element of a festival. And then it made me start to question, well, what exactly is the purpose of this festival? Is it a social experience whereby 
people get a chance to to meet up and have a few drinks and um, and absolutely it is and and that is a, a very valid part of the photo festival however at the same time a few of the ones i've been to over the last couple of years um, i've had a number of people sort of decrying the fact that it's the same old people turning up to the same old festivals and i from an outsider's perspective i really can see that because i think they're talking to that audience because that's the audience they've always talked to so although i don't want to stop the idea of the physical photo festival and i certainly don't want to uh, stop the idea that people meet up for a drink i think what we do need to do is sort of question the traditional format or that template of the festival and really bring it into a more democratic and again going back to where we were at the beginning of this episode allow people who can't afford to travel to one specific location to experience that festival from their own home I've never been to Perpignan and I've never been to Arles, but I'd love to experience them from my own home. And I'm sure that the people who go will go anyway. But all of those people who aren't going, they may be encouraged to go by having that different kind of an experience. Just some reflections and just some thoughts there. But I think maybe there's something in them. Anyway, I wrote an article, as I often do when I have these thoughts, and that article that goes into a little bit more depth about this uh, is on the United Nations of Photography website. And as always, a link to that is below this podcast on the United Nations of website page. So that's it, really. I suppose we're in a, a strange situation, with a sense of limbo as to uh, are we going back to the new normal are we afraid of the uh, second spikes what really is happening i don't think any of us truly know but the most important thing of all is as i say every week please just take care